Since the mid-1800s, newly birthed beliefs about the end times have become voluminous. On my desk at home is a page of information that leads to the conclusion that Christ must and will come back in the year 2008. And were you to read the rationale behind which that conclusion is drawn, you would assume that it was no more brilliantly inspired than the drama that you've heard that Kurt wrote. No wonder so many people today are avoiding the subject matter of the end days, particularly found in the Bible, because the thought is there's so many wild schemes out there. Who is to be believed and how in the world would you ever read the book of Revelation with meaning or understanding? Over the last couple of weeks in this series, the rest of the story, we have looked at three major subjects. We've looked at first the throne in Revelation chapter 4. Then we looked at the scroll that was found in chapter 5. And then in chapters 6 and 7, we saw what's called the seven seals. For you that were not with us, the throne represents God's sovereign control, his rule over all of creation. The scroll refers to God's decrees or his purposes in which he has planned all things that come to pass. All things. And then the seals representing that which holds this book, the scroll, the decrees of God that holds it shut, keeping the universe from being governed in the interest of the believer and his church. And so if you were with us in that study, the great dilemma, John wept because he thought there was no one worthy to open the book and then is presented Christ, the lamb and lion who takes the book and begins to open it and we see the breaking of the seven seals and we see his plan being executed and who executes the plan of the Trinity? It is the Lord Jesus Christ who does so, the one who is worthy. Last week as we observed the seals, we concluded that these seals represent all kind of suffering and trials and difficulties, all that could be imagined. But we saw that they were executed in the plan of God and done so by the Lord Jesus Christ, the lover of each of us who are his. And that poses a dilemma, certainly to many a Christian, who says, hold on just a minute. Are you saying to me that in God's decree, in his plan, that he has included suffering and pain? Or are you just saying that, well, it's not part of his plan, but he's going to now work it together for good now that it happens, the suffering, the pain, the difficulty coming from the hand of Satan himself, and therefore, God now is going to take the pieces and put it back together. Well, Christian, you've got to decide sometime, and I hope sooner more than later, you've got to decide to what degree is God in control? To what degree are all things in his plan, or are all things in his plan? For instance, 
What role would you say that God has played in the tornadoes of this past week that were so devastating? Would you say no role whatsoever? Or would you say, well, he was an observer, but not a part of his plan? Or are you thinking, well, he is now going to use that which was not part of his plan to work it together for good to his own people? Or would you say, no, God is the one who planned it? Without sin, being of no sin of himself, did he plan it? Would he be a part to that degree? Well, I think many of us here, followers of Christ, certainly are going to say, I believe the Bible is God's word. Now, I know that you that are seekers, you're still questioning and wondering about that subject. It's a very important subject matter to study. But Christian, you say, I believe the Bible is God's word. As such, in consideration of what we're talking about, would you listen to the word of God? Amos chapter 3, verse 6. If a trumpet is blown in a city, and that means to announce disaster. Will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Wow. Well, how about Lamentations 3.38? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Or Isaiah 45, verse 7. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. 1 Samuel 2, 6 through 7. The Lord kills, he makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. The theology of many of us is to take him on the good side and put it all the bad on some other side. The word of God does just the opposite. And folks, I struggled to pick which verses because I must have had 30 or 40 to choose from that say the very same thing. For the Christian, we have learned that as the seals were broken, that all of this calamity that is included from the beginning, the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ, and continues to the second coming, including the persecution of the church that the Apostle John knew so well, and the people in many of the lands of our world today experienced to this moment, were able to say, this I know, that yes, it's a part of the plan of God, and that is good. Many a Christian here says, I don't believe that these bad things are part of God's plan. Some Christians are saying, I'm not sure because I read these verses and it surely sounds like he is, but I hope he's not. I hope some way we can interpret these passages to discount the reality of him including in his plan these sort of things. Do You know, I used to be in that camp and say, oh, that's not the God I would love. It's not the God that I would want to love me. And I certainly have a long way yet to go in my spiritual pilgrimage. But I'll say this, I've come now to the point where I say, God, thank you that it's all a part of your plan. I don't know how I would live knowing otherwise. 
The truth of it is, the Christian pilgrimage begins with a thing called trust. We trust in the work of Christ on the cross to take our sins. What some of us fail to realize is the rest of that plan throughout includes trust. And what we have to realize is that God is taking that which he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. And he takes that which he hates, suffering and all the evil of this world and everything, and in his master plan, he uses it to accomplish what he loves so much. The problem is we can't see what he loves in full. We can't understand. One day, though, we will, and we will applaud him and say, God, I never realized, I could have never imagined that you can include that suffering and pain and all that stuff, and it was a part of your control that your own son executed the plan on your throne as those seals were broken and that plan executed. One day we'll say, oh, it's so good. But now we're left with the dilemma of having to trust. And don't we have to say, God, why did you let that happen? Why did you take that person? Why did that tornado have to come through? Why, why, why? And we won't know now, but one day we will. God is executing something wonderful, even in the use of that which he hates. Now, though we have seen how God uses for good all of these seals, as we've seen how the church has impacted the Christian, now we learn that there are to be trumpets to be blown. And angels are going to be called forth in just a symbolic fashion to show that these seven trumpets must be blown, and when they are blown, we're going to see the execution of that plan once again from the same time period, from the first coming of Christ till the second coming of Christ, including all of these calamities, but now we're viewing it from the perspective of how this impacts a lost world. Those same difficulties and struggles and problems and pain and suffering, etc., is going to be used as an initial judgment to the lost but because of the great mercy of God, also these trumpets are going to be warnings to the non-believer. Warnings to say, come to a Savior. Get on board with the things of God. And God is using those trumpets in a merciful way, even though it be the initial judgment of God. One thing we're going to see is that these trumpets as they are blasting forth and come all of these calamities, God continues to say, but only a third, only touch a third, only touch a third, suggesting I am in control, calamity as it comes. It's not coming on its own. I control it. I have its design and how I will use it. And so we see the marvel of God's unusual plan. I'd like for you to pick up with me now in chapter 8, verse 2. And we see the preparation for the trumpets. Verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And now, verses 3 through 5, we see the picture here of a golden censor. Verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. 
And the angel took the censer and he filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. We're seeing here the big picture. The incense. Our Savior's intercession in heaven for his persecuted church. All of this mixed with the prayers of the saints thrown to the earth. God Almighty, the triune God, hears the prayers of the saints. And the initial judgments truly serving as warnings are now the answered prayers of the saints. So those judgments as they're thrown down on the earth, even the prayers of the saints who say, God, justify your name. It will take place. Verse 6, and the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. And now we begin the blowing of the seven trumpets. First, the four trumpets of physical harm. Each of these first four are going to parallel one of the plagues of the Egyptian days when Pharaoh was, was to be uh, harmed by these plagues and all the people of Egypt. We see, first of all, the first trumpet, which refers to land calamities. Various disasters taking place on land. It says, And the first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And then it tells the third of the earth burned up, third of the trees, and so forth. So simply land calamities. Then we see secondly, in verses 8 and 9, the second trumpet, which would be sea calamities. Verse 8, and the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. Reminds us of the Egyptian plague where the sea was turned to blood, and all in it was killed. Verse 9 again talks about the sea and the ships being destroyed, the titanic experiences throughout history. The third trumpet what would be called land water calamities verses 10 and 11 third angel sounded a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters the name of the star is called wormwood and it talks about the damage that has made the bitterness again reminding us of the of the plagues this dropping from the sky showing the act of God Things like floods that even take life and bring much suffering to this world. And then we see the fourth trumpet, weather calamities. Verse 12. And the fourth angel sounded in a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were spitten so that a third of them might be darkened and the day might, become, might not shine for the third of it and the night in the same way. These are the evils that come to us through abnormal functioning of the heavenly bodies. Reminds us of the plague, the darkness of Egypt. So here are the first four of the trumpets being blown, saying, look at the calamities upon earth, but note that they are trumpets. They're initiating a judgment, but it's not pure judgment like the bowls of wrath that we'll see later. These to be warnings to the non-believer, it's not too late. Come, follow Christ. Verse 13, we see a, a little intermission between the four and then the three that follow. 
It says, and I looked, and I heard an eagle, and really that should be a vulture. It's, it's really talking of a bird of prey, who's flying in the mid-heavens, saying with a loud voice, Whoa, 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 to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now we're going to exponentially notch up the anguish to what I'm going to call the three trumpets of intense anguish. So we have the fifth, which will be the first woe of the three, Satan's non-fatal attacks. Verse 1, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. Now, if you were in our keys series, you would know this is talking about Satan as he's cast forth, as he's accusing the brethren before God, before the death of Christ, saying, you can't tell me that your people are redeemed. There has not been a Messiah who's paid for the penalty. And if I have to kill every male child in the whole land, I will keep it from happening, and he can't, and Christ pays the penalty he's raised from the dead he's seated in the heavenlies and Satan no longer can make such accusation accusations and he's thrown to the earth no longer to deceive all the nations key to the bottomless pit given to him and he opened the bottomless pit verse 2 and smoke went out of the pit and then we see verse 3 and out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth. Don't think of locusts as literal locusts. This is that which devours as locusts would do. And here's a key verse in verse 3. And power was given them. By whom was the power given? By Almighty God as Christ allows it in his decrees. Verse 4, and they were told they should not hurt the grass, the earth, nor anything green, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And we're going to see in chapter 13 this idea of God's people being sealed on their forehead and the non-Christians having their sign, the 666 sign. We'll get to that later. But note verse 5 again, and they were not permitted to kill anyone. So these are attacks, but they're not fatal. They cannot kill in this particular trumpet. Then verse 7, it says, and the appearance of the locust was, and it tells you a wild description here, just to show the horror of the locust, the evil one and all he's doing. And then we see in verse 11, they, that is the demonic forces, they have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in the Hebrew is Abaddon. And in the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. So the star being Satan and Christ saying of that in Luke 10, 18, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. This is immediately before his death. It gives us an understanding being in the abyss. Luke 8, the demons when they're so scared of what Christ is doing to them, cry out. They were entreating him not to commend, command them to depart into the abyss. In Revelation 20, we've read this earlier, but I'd like to read it again just to put all this into focus. First three verses say, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years, not from doing all things, 
But as it says, threw him to the abyss, shut it, and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. That's important. He's going to be released for a short time. That's going to come to be understood when we come to chapters 10 and 11. So Satan receives the power to open the abyss, to let the demons out. The world is now filled with his demonic presence. The smoke that we read about, the deception, the delusion, the lies, the sin. The demons rob Christians of light, righteousness, holiness, joy. And then we come to verse 12. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these. And that takes us to the sixth trumpet. Sixth trumpet, as I will suggest, represents Satan's fatal attacks, 13 through 21. Verse 13, we read, And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Keep that name, river Euphrates, in your mind. End of verse 15, so that they might kill, now it can be fatal, kill a third of mankind. And the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Now, many who are working on their theologies of the end days who have those wild crazy perspectives like our drama illustrated are reading this this week and saying yes China NATO look what happened to the embassy in China who would have 200 million war machines it's got to be China Now we're seeing it happen. China's coming into the picture. If you believe that, believe the drama you heard here, okay? Because it couldn't be referring to that. This is talking about the demonic forces. So numerous they can't be counted by you or me. 200 million, the term that's used. Then in verse 20, skipping down, it says, And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. So the trumpets don't work with all folks, that's for sure. That river Euphrates, referring to the eastern limit of the promised land, that's where Babylon and Assyria and so forth, the wicked world was, and it says, go forth, go out. With that, we really come to the end of the sixth trumpet. It's found in 1114 where it says, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly, chapter 11, verse 14. But what happens between these two passages, chapter 10 up through 1113? There is a parenthesis that takes place here. But here at this point, we're going to see the witness, defeat, and the victory of God's church. You're going to learn about the eating of a little book and the measuring of a temple, the measuring of the altar and the measuring of the the people. You're going to see here two witnesses that are raised up. But after there's the commissioning of the church and their witness, we're going to see the suffering and defeat of the church in this text. And that's where the church is going to look as if its life has been cut out. It is, it's almost gone. That's the releasing of the evil one from the abyss for a short period of time. We'll study that here. And the damage is done. 
and the lost think they've snuffed out the witness of the church and they're excited that this nuisance of the church is now finally gone. It has no power anymore. And then we see the real battle of Armageddon. We see the rising of the two dead witnesses referring to the church and they come to life and they rule supreme as we the church will be raptured together and you'll see the ending with the rapture of the church and then the judgment tied together now with that I'm going to move to the seventh trumpet seventh trumpet verses 15 through 19 refers to the final judgment the seventh angel sounded verse 15 and there arose loud voices in heaven saying and listen to what it says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord now it's happening and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever he's always reigned but now the reign will be known by all verse 16 and the 24 elders represents all the peoples of God who sit on their heavenly thrones before God fell on their faces they worship God and listen to what they said see if you see something unique here Christian we give the thanks O Lord God the Almighty who art who was because thou has taken thy great power and has begun to reign if you're familiar with this same statement used prior to this it says who was who is and who is to come is to come is taken out because this is the coming of Christ at his judgment the second coming and then 18 talks about the nations being enra uh, enraged and so forth we come to verse 19 halfway through it says and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. that's the beginning of judgment right there the final what is known as the final judgment leads us to our conclusion now as we end this message I'd like to pose just a couple of questions in closing does God judge those who oppose him of course he does when I was in graduate school preparing studying theology trying to get prepared for the ministry here I had a course that I had to take where I was a chaplain in a hospital and uh, we were to go and comfort and pray for and share the good news of Christ as we had opportunity well I'm the introvert I'm not one to be real aggressive in terms of you know grabbing up people and talking I, it's just not the way I think best to be done and, and so I'd go into rooms and I would ask how they're doing and talk to them a little bit and then if we could kind of gradually and gracefully get into the truths of the gospel then would do so and with the attitude of one beggar showing another beggar where they found food and I went into this lady's room and we got their charts at that time and they allowed the chaplains to have that and we could see the condition the medical condition and it was written very clearly that this person was not seriously ill it was a mild condition would be out soon and and I go in to talk to this lady who's very alert and mid-aged woman and, uh, and I go in and uh, began to talk and she asked who I am. I said, well, I'm serving as a temporary chaplain here at the hospital. And all I had to say was I'm a chaplain. And let me tell you, she came out at me with all things. I mean, she just, I, I maybe never met anybody like this. 
She told me, she says, your God, I don't believe in him, and your God is this, and your God is that, and to hell with your God. And boy, she was just, she was cursing the name of God. I'm sitting there going, wow. And I thought, I don't think she's interested in spiritual things. <laughs> and so I typically take a little step backwards, but I said, well, ma'am, you know, you're being pretty hard here on God. I said, does it concern you that one day you could die? In fact, you will, I'm sure we all do. And you would stand before this God? Does it bother you of what then he would do? And she cursed the name of God. She says, I don't believe there is a God, and if I'm wrong, I don't care about him. And I said, bye-bye, and I left. Three days later, I had to be back for this next class. I go to the class, I go to the, uh, the place, get the, the chart, and I go by the room there, and I notice that she's gone. There's no one else in the room either. And so I happened to see a nurse walking by that I'd spoken to earlier, and I said, Mrs. So-and-so, did she check out? Just curious. She said, you know, the strangest thing. You visited three days ago. You walked out of that room, and that woman died immediately. She died. Now, you read it as you would, but I left thinking, God, I think your hand of judgment is real. I think she crossed the line at that moment. Does God judge? Sure he does. Sure he does. And some of you seekers, you're saying, oh, you're just using this as one of these ploys to scare us. You're right. And that's exactly what God used in my life. I thought this way when I started thinking about heaven and hell and the realities that I believed growing up. I said, you know, I would rather be miserable on this earth for 70, 80, 90 years max, whatever, and then have a happy eternity in God's favor than I would to live it up those 60, 70, 80 years and then have to live in hell forever. And I was so surprised when I became a believer that it was good. And I would, if there were no heaven or hell, if it all ended at death, I would choose Christ. I would choose Christ. Seeker, God gives these warnings. He gives them for a reason. It's his very mercy. Which leads to the second and last question. Does God use his judgment on those who oppose him as a warning to the to the unrighteous? Sure he does. That's his mercy. That shows his mercy. While I was in college, I was having a ministry among a handful of athletes that were living in a dorm together, and we had uh, presented Christ to a, a large number of the, the, uh, the athletes there, and one of the fellows, I'll call him Bill as just a use of a name, one of the fellows Got in a dialogue, I got in a dialogue with this fella, and he, he acknowledged that maybe there was something to what we were talking about when we shared the gospel, but, but his view was, I'm living life to the fullest now. I'm having a good time, and I don't want to be bothered with this religious stuff. But one day, I'm going to embrace it. I'll get older, I'll get my parting behind me, and then I will maybe then embrace it. And we had kind of a humorous little dialogue going. I'd see him, we had a good relationship, and I'd see him walking across campus and say, hey, Bill, how about it? And Bill said, I'm still thinking. And that was just a routine little exchange. Hey, Bill, how about it? I'm still thinking. One day, the elevator broke in this dormitory. 
And it was a couple of days getting it fixed. They had to call out-of-town help to come get it fixed. And ironically, at the same time it had broken, one of the students, this fellow I'll call Bill, was missing. No one knew where he was. Little they realized until they fixed the elevator that he was wedged between the elevator and the shaft. He was dead. It suffocated. Probably a long, grueling death. And I think, was that a trumpet? Maybe even for Bill. And maybe in that last hour as he saw the calamity that he was experiencing, would even through the mercy of God show him he needed the living Savior? I don't know. But I know this. The other Christians that I was in relationship with there, and when I was in that dorm, unusual opportunities to proclaim Christ now because there had been a trumpet that had sounded in their ears. And now they're sobered and saying, oh, let me think about life. And so, seeker, would you come to Christ? Would you turn your heart's attention to him? The gospel story is that his righteousness, perfect righteousness, can be yours as a gift. You can't earn it, but it can be given to you by the work on the cross. And that means that your unrighteousness has been taken by him on the cross, and he's paid for it so that you can have new life. And as the drama said, we win. We win. And seeker, our team wins. Your team loses according to the word of God. But the good news is you can change teams. Now the fourth quarter, it's going to look like you're winning. That's the storyline. It will look like we're down and out for the last count that we can't get up and then bang, it happens. The end of the story, the rest of the story is the Christian, the church is victorious. So my counsel in the last hour, as with you. Let's change teams. It's fair game. Come over and be on the team of Christ. Follow him and enjoy his righteousness forever. As we pray, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you do give life through the imparting of your righteousness in Christ. I pray now for seekers that would maybe be hearing the trumpet even through experiences of life right now would say yes I want you a merciful and loving God may we as Christians as we consider the rest of this text that we might embrace the commission you've given us to go into all the world and preach the gospel knowing that we're on the winning team so we love you we thank you for the privilege of being yours we pray this in the matchless name of Christ our Savior amen